0: Hey everybody, good to see you this morning. How you doing? Good to see you. Welcome to all of you folks across the street, the video venue, and all of you who may be joining us online today. I'm not, I'm not sure, I forgot to ask, I'm not sure who the online pastor is, but I'm sure they're awesome, whoever they are, and uh, they're there to serve you in any way possible. Grab your Bible or your phone or your iPad or whatever it might be, and go with me to the book of Revelation. When you get to the book of Revelation, I want you to find the third chapter, and we're going to spend our time in the first six verses of Revelation chapter 3 this morning as we continue this series called Dear Church, and of course the tagline is Seven Letters to Seven Churches. We're a little bit more than halfway through the study when we come together this morning, but this is kind of an interesting weekend because this weekend we move from Revelation chapter 2 to Revelation chapter 3. And so in light of that, why don't we just pause for a moment and take a little bit of a review. This will be great for those of you who might be guests with us today. If you are a guest, thanks so much for being a part of our service today. I don't know how familiar you are with the book of Revelation, but the first few chapters, in the first few chapters of the book of Revelation, what we find is Jesus speaking in the present to His church. And that becomes really clear when you get to Revelation chapters 2 and 3 where we're studying, and we find the seven letters to the seven churches that we're talking about in this special study. Basically, here's what happened. During his ministry, the Apostle Paul founded the church in the city of Ephesus. And it was a powerful church, and it was such a strong church that they ended up taking the gospel, which is a word that means the good news. So they ended up taking the gospel, the good news, the saving message of Jesus Christ all throughout Asia Minor. Asia Minor is modern-day Turkey for us. I'm going to be there in just a few weeks with some of you. We're going on a trip. We're leaving the day after Easter. We're going on a 10-day trip to Greece and to Turkey. And looking forward to that, we're going to be visiting some of the spots that we've been talking about during this study. But anyway, they ended up from Ephesus taking the gospel message of Christ throughout Asia Minor. And here's how we know that's true. Look at these words on the screen from Acts chapter 19 and verse 10. We've looked at these words already a few times in this study, but let's be reminded. In fact, let's just read them together. Let me hear your voices. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia Heard the word of the Lord. Now, what Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, is talking about when he says this went on is he's talking about the preaching and the teaching ministry of the Apostle Paul while he was in the city of Ephesus. Paul was a powerful preacher, he was a powerful evangelist, and he was a church planter. And I guarantee you, Ephesus was the first church that the first letter was written to in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. But I guarantee you that the other six churches that received letters were started by somebody who was either an associate of the Apostle Paul or somebody who was converted to Christ through the ministry of the Apostle Paul while he was in the city of Ephesus. And uh, that's how these churches came to be. Let me show you them on a map. We did this once before, but let me just show you the way they would appear geographically on a map uh, There you have them. There are the seven churches that we read about in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And remember, I told you that most uh, Bible scholars believe that the reason why the letters are found in the order that they are in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 is that that was the order that the letters were literally delivered to them in ancient days. So that's why the letter to the church at Ephesus is first, and then you travel 40 miles north, and you have the letter to the church in Smyrna, and then on up to Pergamum, and then you start south again, Thyatira. Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. But here's the deal, folks. It had been when we read these letters in Revelation, it had been about forty years since the church in Ephesus had been started, and probably somewhere between thirty and forty years since the rest of the churches had been planted. And over the to- over time, churches sometimes change. Churches are like people uh, in certain ways, in that. We all have personalities and characters that we develop over time. Some of it's good, and some of it's not so good, and that was true of these churches, and that's why Jesus wrote these letters. He gave these letters to the Apostle John by revelation. Now, the Apostle John, at the time he received this revelation from Jesus that became the book of Revelation, was in exile ...on a tiny little isle in the Aegean Sea called Patmos. That's another place that we're going to visit in just a few weeks. How cool is that going to be? To be right there where John received the revelation. And uh, he wrote these letters down as a part of the overall book of Revelation. And then each one of these letters were taken by representatives from the churches... ...when they visited John in exile and they carried them back to their subsequent churches... Let me just say one more thing by way of introduction and review. Wasn't easy to live the gospel or preach the gospel or uphold the gospel during this period of time in history. We're talking roughly about the end of the first century. I mean, think about a couple of things with me. Jesus has come, but he's been rejected, he's been arrested, he's been beaten, and he's been brutally executed on the cross, which is indicative of the hostility of the world at that time toward Jesus. The apostles had received a commission from Jesus after his resurrection from the dead and before his ascension into heaven. They'd received a commission from Jesus to go into all the world and make disciples, and they were doing that. They had begun to do that, but one by one by one, they were all killed, both history and tradition teach us that the apostle John who received and wrote down this revelation was the only one of the original 12 apostles that died in natural death. The rest of them were martyred in a variety of horrific ways, whether it was crucifixion or stoning or being stabbed to death or on and on and on. John, the only survivor of the original 12 when he received this revelation was an old, old man. He was, as I mentioned, in exile on the island of Patmos and he was breaking rocks next to a lot of other prisoners just waiting until the day that he died and the church itself in the world including these churches was under persecution and it was a fierce persecution and that did different things to the churches and resulted in different characteristics and responses from the churches some of it good and some of it bad and jesus recognized that, and he recognized that if he wrote a letter to these churches dealing with their issues, that those letters could be preserved through history and serve as examples for the church throughout all generations. And so that's why he wrote the letters. We've already looked at the letter to the church in Ephesus, the letter to the church in Smyrna, the letter to the church in Pergamum, the letter to the church in Thyatira. And this weekend, we're looking at the letter to the church In Sardis. And so if you got your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 3, wherever you are, I want to invite you to stand with me like we always do for the reading of God's Word. If you're a guest, this is something we do every week. We stand in reverence and respect for God's Word, and we make the public reading of Scripture a significant part of our service. It's a short letter, just six verses. You follow along as I read. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They, wa- they will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my God and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, there it is. You can be seated. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of His Word. Let's talk for a moment about how this letter begins. Normally, I just pause in the public reading of the Scripture to give you some comments about how Jesus identifies Himself as the correspondent in the beginning of these letters, but I didn't do it this time because I wanted to give this a little bit more time. Verse 1 says, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, stop right there, remember I told you in the beginning, that that, I don't believe, is a reference to a literal angel. You could read these letters and think that maybe every church has its own guardian angel. And uh, I don't believe that's the case. I believe that's the Greek word, angelos. It's translated angel, but it's also translated different things. I really think that that word is talking about the pastors, the leaders of the church. And so, I guess in a sense you could say that every church has an angel and it's the pastor. <laughs> but you knew that already, right? Right? And then he goes on in, in verse 1. He says, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words. And this is where Jesus identifies himself as the correspondent. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Let's just talk about that in reverse, the seven stars. That's something we've already seen. That was a reference Jesus made in the very first letter, the letter to the church in Ephesus. We're just talking about the messenger of the church at that point. So he's talking about, I, I think in my mind, probably the person who actually delivers the message, the letter back to the church. He says, I hold them in my hand. But what does he mean when he says, these are the, ones of, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God? What does that mean? Well, I want to tell you this morning, I really believe strongly that that's simply a reference to the absolute fullness of the Holy Spirit. The seven spirits of God is a reference to the absolute fullness of the holy spirit. Let's talk about the holy spirit for a minute. Let's just let this be a teaching time for just a moment. You know, every time somebody talks about the holy spirit, people get a little bit nervous or anxious or can get a little bit nervous or anxious because there's so many extreme things taught about the Holy Spirit, from who He is to what He does to how He works in our lives. And over the years, if you remember, I've told you that every time we think about the Holy Spirit, we just need to remember four words, and those four words teach us who the Holy Spirit is. In fact, I encouraged you a long time ago to write those down in your Bible, in the inside or the back cover of my Bible, right here. It says, uh, um, the Holy Spirit, and I've got my four words written down there, so I will never forget them. The first word is the word person, because the Holy Spirit, first and foremost, is a person. That's important to note, because we think of the Holy Spirit as some ooh, vapor ghost. Sometimes he's called the Holy Ghost. But he's a person, and we know that because he's referred to as a person over and over again in the Scriptures. He's not some mystical vapor, somebody who's there, not there. He's a person, a person. The second word is uh, the word part, and what that means is the Holy Spirit, we need to understand, is a part of what Christians call the Trinity, and then the Trinity is a word that Christians use to describe the triune nature of God. Don't let that sound so deep that it goes over your head. The word Trinity is a word that Christians use to describe the triune nature of God. And the triune nature of God is the simple truth that the Bible teaches us, that there's only one God. Everyone say, one God. One God. Only one God. But the Bible teaches us that one God lives and exists at all times in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the... Say it with me. Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a part of that triune nature of God. He's a part. That means the Holy Spirit is God. The third word is the word promise. The Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit is a promise to everyone who is a believer, to everyone who is saved, everyone who is a Christian. When you became a Christian, one of the things that happened to you is that the Holy Spirit began to live inside of you. The moment of your salvation, the Holy Spirit took up residence inside of you. The Bible tells us this over and over again in a variety of different ways. Let me just give you one example. And we'll just use an example from the very beginning. You go to Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when the church began. And the apostle Peter, Jesus says, returned to heaven. And Peter stands up and preaches the first gospel sermon about Jesus that was ever preached. And the people were cut to the heart. And so they said to the, to the apostles, this is Acts chapter 2 and verse 37. They said, what? shall we do? What what should our response be to this truth, this message? And verse 38 of Acts chapter 2 says, Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's a, he's a promise to every believer at the point of your salvation. He took up residence in your life. The fourth word is power. Power. This is how we understand the Holy Spirit. He's the power of our lives. He drives our lives. He provides spiritual power in our lives. And that power is manifest in a lot of different ways. But in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, before Jesus returned to heaven, he said to the disciples, he said, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And that's how we understand who the Holy Spirit is. No reason for us to be anxious or nervous in any way, shape, or form about who the Holy Spirit is. This is the reality of who he is. And I believe that when Jesus identifies himself as holding the seven spirits of God, he's talking about, I possess the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And here's why I say that. I want you to look at this verse from Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2. In Isaiah, the Old Testament book of Isaiah 11 and 2, I think we see a verse that describes the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and it's in seven different descriptions. It says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. All right, leave that up there for just a moment. Now I've told you over the years, when it comes to reading and studying our Bibles, that there are certain rules that we need to follow when it comes to interpretation, when it comes to understanding. And the first rule is this. Tell me if you've ever heard this before. When the normal sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. You ever heard that before? When the normal sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. The Bible, don't make it more complicated than it is, in other words. And when I apply that Rule to this verse, I see seven realities about the Holy Spirit. Number one, He is fundamentally the Spirit of the Lord. Number two, He's the Spirit of wis- wisdom. Number three, He's the Spirit of understanding. Number four, He's the Spirit of counsel. Number five, He's the Spirit of power. Number six, He's the Spirit of knowledge. And number seven, He's the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. And so I just think Jesus is talking about the fullness of the Holy Spirit when He says, I hold the seven spirits of the Lord. Now, There are other beliefs and interpretations, but I'm pretty sure I'm right about this. (laughs) I think I am. I really do. So um, I want you to remember that. This is Jesus identifying himself in a really, really specific way. Let me give you one other reason why I think I'm right about this. There there was a critical problem in the church at Sardis. We identified it when we read the passage. The problem was they had the appearance of being alive, but Jesus said they were what? Dead. Dead. He said they were dead. You ever been in a dead church? You know, it's hard to judge. Honestly, it's hard to judge. But I imagine all of us who have been associated with different churches over the years, or we visited different churches over the years, where we at least wondered whether or not that church was alive or dead. Well, let me tell you what I think is the reality of a dead church. A dead church is a place where there's no life, where the life of God is not present. And you know who brings the life of God? The Holy Spirit brings the life of God And I think it's interesting that Jesus identifies himself as as holding the seven spirits of God, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, up to a church that is dead, that has the appearance of being alive, but is dead. The life and the power of the Holy Spirit was not present in this church. All right, having said that, let's walk our way through the letter. We'll use the same basic outline we've been using for each letter. If you're taking notes, write down next to number one, the concern, and we're going to spend the majority of our time right here on this one point. Jesus' concern is captured in the latter part of verse 1. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. He says, in other words, you, you look good on the outside. You look like you're alive on the outside, but I know that's a lie. I know that the truth of your church is that you're dead. That's a harsh concern, but remember, we're talking about Jesus who knows everything, Jesus who knows the real story of every single church. I probably sound like a broken record at this point in the study if you've been here from the beginning, but let me just remind you that Jesus uses a very specific word in the Greek language, the original language of the New Testament, for know when he says, I know your deeds. It's the Greek word, eido. And the significance of that is that it's not the most common word used for know in the Greek language. New Testament, which is the word ginosko, which describes a progressive knowledge. I am learning. I am coming to know. Jesus says, I know. I know everything. I see and understand and know everything there is to know about you. And so he says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. This church had managed to fool the rest of the world. They had a reputation of being alive, but they couldn't fool Jesus, who sees and knows everything. But here's the big question, and this is the big, big concern. Why? What had happened? What had caused this church to die? We have to believe that in the beginning, especially if it was a part of the overflow of the ministry, the dynamic ministry of the Apostle Paul as a church planner, we have to believe that there was a time when this church was full of life and flourishing. So, over the course of perhaps just three decades, how did it come to be a church that was dead? You could come up with a long list of reasons, but I'm going to suggest one singular reason that I think you can find in the text, and that one singular reason is I think that they were dead because of sin. I think that sin had killed this church. And let me tell you why I say that. Look at verse 3. In verse 3, Jesus tells them, remember therefore what you have received and heard, obey it and repent. Two things stand out to me and that's the word obey it or the word obey and the word repent. Let's talk about them in reverse order. Uh, Jesus tells them that one of the things that they need to do is they need to repent. Now let me tell you something folks, the word repent in the Bible is always associated with sin, the repentance of sin. It's the Greek word metanoeo. I don't think we put that on the PowerPoint because we've talked about it before, It's the word metanoeo, and it literally means to change your mind. That's the meaning of the word repent when you encounter it in the Bible, but it means to change your mind, and the practical association with that is to change your mind in a way that changes your life, that changes the direction of your life, and so oftentimes we use the word turn to describe the meaning of the word repent because the word repent means in essence to turn away from sin and turn to God to turn away from sin and turn back to God and that's the reality here and so Jesus says you need to repent he wouldn't say that to them if there weren't sin in their church we don't say repent to somebody who doesn't have sin in their life repentance is associated with sin And this is what we have to remember. The second thing that stands out to me in that verse 3 is he says, when you remember what you have received and heard, then you need to obey it. Obey it. And so, in essence, Jesus is saying you need to go back and remember the things from the beginning. You need to remember, in particular, the things that you have heard, which can only be a reference for the truth of God's word. And when you remember it, you need to obey it. Now, what's the opposite of obedience? It's disobedience. So in essence, he's saying you need to get rid of the disobedience and get back to obedience. That's what's associated with sin. A lack of obedience leads to sin. Let me give you one more reason why I think that it was sin that had killed this church. Look at verse 4. This comes as a part of a brief commendation. There's not much commendation to the church in Sardis because they were dead. But there's a brief part in verse 4 when he says, Jesus says, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not, note this, he said, not soiled their clothes maybe your verse or your version of the bible uses the word stained stained or soiled their clothes that's that's another great word in the original language of the new testament that's the greek word maluno and it literally means to pollute contaminate and defile and when it's used in the new testament it describes people who have not kept themselves from the defilement of sin now i want you to know something with me this morning let's just be honest together today there are a lot of things that can cause a church to die you know, churches die when, when tradition becomes the only thing that they care about. Churches can die when they make the preservation of the past much more important than the ministry opportunities of the future. You ever been to a church like that that's still living in the past? I preached a revival years ago when I lived in Oklahoma in a little church in a little farm community in Missouri, in southeast Missouri. I preached a revival there. And I wasn't the one that they wanted to preach that revival. They had another guy scheduled, and he had a tragedy happen in his family. He gave them my name. They called me up at the last minute. I went to preach that revival, and it was the worst revival in the history of the Christian church. (laughs) And I was a part of it because it was just so disorganized but this was a church I got there in like 30 or 40 years before they had a really dynamic preacher there and the church experienced great growth and they had they were on the cutting edge of all the ministry things that were going on in the local church and just they were vibrant and they were alive and they were dynamic in that town and they had shrunk down to next to nothing 30 or 40 years later but you know the only thing they would talk about was the past what had happened in the past Churches die when they make the preservation of the past more important than the opportunities that God gives them in the future. Churches die for lack of prayer. Churches die for lack of community. Churches die for lack of vision, for lack of mission. All those different things. There's a lot of different reasons why churches can die But this church was spiritually dead, and the Bible makes it clear that spiritual death is always connected to sin. We don't know what form the sin took. It could have taken the form of error, the distortion of truth. It could have taken the form of compromise. It could have been other things, but spiritual death is always connected with sin. And so what that does is that reminds us, and this is what we need to understand today, it reminds us of how dangerous sin is, how dangerous sin is. That's why we've always got to keep our guard up with regard to sin I want to put a verse from Hebrews chapter 12 up on the screen. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. The Hebrew writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders, note this, and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. That one phrase there, and the sin that so easily entangles, that's a great description of the danger of sin. It has the ability to entangle our lives, and it does it in so many ways. It entangles us because it has power over our flesh, over our physical bodies. Sin causes us to do things or consider doing things or feel things that we, would never, we never thought we would before. It entangles us because it's so close. It's inside of us. It entangles us because it mingles with every part of our lives. It weaves its way into the fabric of our motives and our actions and our thoughts. And you can go on and on and on. We need to see and understand the danger of sin. It's a dangerous, dangerous thing. It was so dangerous that it caused Jesus to write a letter to a church and said, I know that you have the appearance of being alive, but you're dead. You're dead. One of the most tragic days in history for England was August the 17th, 1662. It was tragic because that was the last day that certain pastors were ever going to be able to stand in front of their churches and preach to their people ever again because after that, They were either going to be exiled or executed. This was the result of something that was happening in England. A law in the government in England called the Act of Conformity. Through the years there had been developing developing in England churches and pastors that had been labeled as nonconformists. And basically what that meant, they were nonconformists because they refused to conform to the dead church church of England by conforming to the government-prescribed liturgy of worship. Or in other words, they refused to just read from a book and just go through the motions of looking religious instead of preaching the truth of God's Word and worshiping God in spirit and truth. They said, no, we won't do it. We won't do it. And so they were labeled as nonconformists. Because of that, these pastors of these churches were either exiled or ex- executed. In fact, when it all came to fruition on, after August the 17th, 2,500 of them were exiled and 3,000 pastors in England were executed. It was all in focus on that August 17th date because that was the last day they could preach to their churches. There is a book that's written called Farewell Sermons that contains 24 of the sermons that were preached that day. 24 sermons from pastors who would never stand in the pulpit of their church again, never see their people again. It's interesting to note as you read through the sermons that they are not self-serving. They're not filled with condemnation for the government. Most of the pastors stood up and and said things to their people like, I'm not angry. Don't be upset with God. I'm not concerned about what happens to me. I'm concerned about what happens to you. And I just want to bring honor and glory to God. And those are the sentiments of the messages. But let me share a very small portion of one of the sermons that was preached that day, a pastor talking to the people in his church for the very last time. He said to them, you have experienced a calamity. This is a calamitous thing. This is a calamitous event. But then he went on to say, but understand, there is more evil in the least sin than in the greatest calamity. There is more evil in the least sin than in the greatest misery. Now, I hope we can understand and recognize what a profound statement that was because of how dangerous sin is. Listen to me. There's no such thing as a little sin. There's no such thing as a small sin, even though people like you and me, and I'll put myself on the top of the list, we sometimes like to categorize sin. This is a small sin. This is a big sin. I'm okay as long as as I only tread in the area of small sins. I'm not going to get over here in big sins, There's no such thing as a small sin because every sin has the power to destroy your life on some level at some point. And there's no such thing as a small sin because all sin can have a numbing effect on our lives to the point where we don't even recognize we're doing something wrong anymore. When I was a boy growing up in church, I remember being taught all the great stories of the Bible, the great stories of the Old Testament. I remember being taught the story of Samson. Do you remember the story of Samson? Who was such a great hero for God's people for a time. For a time, he was such a great hero for God's people. He started off so strong, but Samson was a man who loved to indulge himself. He was a man who loved to indulge whatever feeling, whatever desire, whatever passion he had in his life, even though, if you remember the story, he had been set apart to God from birth. He had been set apart or or, or made holy to God from birth. The very reason why Samson was not allowed to cut his hair was that was a part of a Nazarite vow that set him apart to God from the time of his birth. He started off strong, but then he got involved in all kinds of indulgences, and he really, really took a wrong turn in his life when he got involved with a woman named Delilah, who my NIV Bible identifies as a prostitute. He saw her one day, and he just had to have her. Delilah was paid by the Philistines, who were the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people, to find out the source of Samson's strength, if you remember that story, and so... When he would be alone with her, he would say, she would say, Samson, Samson, if you really loved me, (laughs) if we really had an intimate connection, you would tell me the source of your strength. And let's face it, Samson was stupid (laughs) along with everything else. And so the first time he said, well, the source of my strength is if you tie me up with seven thongs, seven thongs that have never been dried then all my strength will be gone. And so he fell asleep, and that's what she did. And then she said, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he woke up, and he broke the thongs without any problem. And she said, Samson, (laughs) or something like that. (laughs) You know, you need to tell me the source of your strength. And he said, well, if you tie me with seven new ropes, then all my strength will be gone. he fell asleep, and she did that. And she said, Samson, the Philistines are upon you, and he got up, and the ropes were no problem. And the third time, she said, you just need to tell me the source of your strength. And Samson wasn't very smart. He said, if you weave the seven braids of my hair into the fabric on a loom, and you fasten it with a pin, I'll lose all my strength. And she, he fell asleep, and he was a sound sleeper, and she did that. She said, Samson, the Philistines are upon you, and he got up, and he snapped the loom, no problem. And I don't know what, she just, she just pulled out all of her feminine wiles, and one last time, she asked him to tell her the source of his strength, and this time he did. That it was in his hair. And that he was not allowed to cut his hair. you Remember the story, he fell asleep and she cut his hair. In Judges chapter 16 and verse 20 says this. This verse contains one of the saddest statements in all the Bible. It says, Samson, she, then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you, and he awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free.' And here, free, and here it is. But he did not know the Lord had left him. Why? Because of the numbing power of sin. He didn't know that he had gone too far, that he had said too much. They he'd taken a step of disobedience that changed his life. He did not know that the Lord had left him. But that's what sin does. And that's how it brings spiritual death into our lives. And that's how it brings spiritual death into the church. We can look like everything we're doing is right. We can look like we have all the signs of life but be dead where it matters the most. And that's why it's so important for us to center our activities on the truth of God's word when we gather together in in corporate worship opportunities. That's why it's so important for us to put ourselves in positions of community and accountability with other believers and other people of faith. And that's why it's so important for God to be the highest priority in our lives. I could talk about this for... A lot longer, but I've already talked too long, so we need to move on. I'm going to do these last three really quickly. I promise you we're going to get out on time. Right down next to number two, the commendation. There is a brief word of commendation. I already mentioned that to you. First, we started with a concern, but there's a brief word of commendation in verse 4 where Jesus says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. And then Jesus says, they will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. That means in this dead church, they were genuine believers. We've already talked over the weeks about how in every church, there's a combination of true believers and false believers. And Jesus promises that one day they would walk with him dressed in white. And Jesus is talking about white robes of purity. He's talking about purity. And so the bottom line is Jesus gives them a commendation and he tells them that those who live with a measure of holiness and a measure of purity in this world are going to experience the full measure of holiness and purity in the world that is to come. And that, of course, is heaven. And then we see number three, write down the words, the council. The council. Jesus tells them what they need to do, and he says it in the first part of verse 2 and then all of verse 3. I'll put those together and put them as one verse on the screen so you can see it. Jesus says, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Let's just reduce that to three things. Jesus says, wake up, number one. Wake up, and that's what we need to do so much of the time. We need to wake up. We need somebody to slap us in the face with the. Truth of God's word, we need to get a a, a bucket of the cold water of God's truth to drench us, to get our attention. We need to wake up so we can begin to make things right. Number two, he says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Listen, I find great encouragement in that statement. I find great encouragement in that statement because he's talking to a church that's dead, but he's but he's evidently saying, as he says, I know everything there's to know about your church, he says, find, find that little ember. Find that one thing, that one little thing that still has a measure of life to it, that still has an opportunity, that's still an open door, and focus your attention on it. And that's what I tell people all the time when they come to me for personal counsel and they talk about some area of their life that has died or has been destroyed or is in terrible ruins. And I say, well, well, let's just try to find that one thing. Sometimes uh, the easiest way to illustrate it, sometimes it's a marriage and they say it's over, it's dead. And we talk about what's that one thing. Is there one area where you still connect at least on some level? And if you can find that one area, then just focus all of your attention on that. All of your effort, all of your prayers, all of your emphasis. And give God a chance to work. And then the third thing he says, you need to remember what it was like in the beginning. You need to obey what you heard in the beginning Again, I believe that's a reference to the truth of God's word, and you need to repent. That's his counsel. Then number four, write down the conclusion. And in the conclusion, this is where Jesus gives a promise and an invitation. And he does that in the conclusion of every one of these letters. We find a promise, and we find an invitation. The promise is to those who overcome. And in this letter, he says that those who overcome will be dressed in white. They will never have their name blotted out of the book of life And they will be acknowledged, their name will be acknowledged before God and his angels. White in ancient days was the color of purity, just like it is today. And purity was celebrated in wedding ceremonies, just like it is today today. You know, the Bible says, everybody listen close. The Bible says, and you probably already know this, but the Bible says that as the the church, the church, and we're not just talking about one building or one location or one denomination or anything, but the church is made up of believers all around the world who are committed to Christ, the body of Christ. He says the church, the body of Christ, is the bride of Christ. That's the terminology that the Bible uses for us as a whole, the bride of Christ. We're the bride of Christ. And the Bible says that one day, The church, as the bride of Christ, is going to be joined together with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Lamb is a capital L. It's a reference to Jesus. Write down Revelation 19, verses 7 through 10. And that purity will be celebrated in that moment. And if you're an overcomer, you can count on that. And if you're an overcomer, you can count on the fact that your name is not going to be blotted out of the book of life. You can, just be, you can count on the reality of eternal life with God. That's the promise to overcomers. And then the invitation is the same as it is in every letter. It's an invitation to pay close attention because he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, Brian's going to come, and we're going to get ready to close. But before we do, let me just mention one other thing. I didn't say anything about the city of Sardis. We usually talk about the city when we do these letters. Let me tell you about the city of Sardis just for a moment. The city of Sardis, the truth is, the experience of the church in Sardis mirrors the experience of the city of Sardis itself. Because at one time, at one time, the city of Sardis was one of the greatest cities in the ancient world. It was the capital of what was known as the Lydian kingdom in ancient days. And it was a kingdom that was fabulously wealthy because of gold that they took out of a nearby river. In fact, there was so much gold in the river that historians say that it was like the bed of the river was, was just painted gold. There was that much gold there. And so they were fabulously, fabul- fabulously and incredibly wealthy. But the most distinguishing thing about the city of Sardis was that it appeared to be impregnable and impenetrable because it was built on a hill that stood 1,500 feet above the Hermes River Valley. And the hill it was built on had smooth, almost perpendicular rock walls on three sides. So there was really only one viable way to enter the city, and that was on the south side. And even then, you had to climb up a steep and a difficult path. And so it seemed impregnable and impenetrable to any enemy. Over time, the city grew and they expanded to the bottom of the hill. But whenever there was a threat, whenever an enemy came along, all the people of the city retreated to the top of the hill where they felt safe from danger. But even at that, the city of Sardis was conquered, not once but twice in the same way. First of all, by Cyrus the Persian and secondly, by Antiochus the Great. What happened was they were so confident of their safety that they refused to put even one watchman on the different sides, the three different sides of the city that seemed impenetrable. They just watched the south side, the main entrance. And on both occasions, when Cyrus the Persian and when Antiochus the Great came and conquered the city, he just got skilled men to scale the walls slowly but surely, one step at a time, until they found themselves inside the city, which led to the conquer. So how were they destroyed? They were destroyed by their overconfidence. They were destroyed because they didn't keep their guard up. There's a great, great analogy between that and the way sin destroys our lives. And it reminds us yet again of the great danger of sin I want you to think for just a moment about that one area of your life where you think you are absolutely impenetrable when it comes to doing something wrong. What do you think is the strength of your life? It's my marriage. Nothing can ever happen to destroy my marriage. And I can't tell you how many times I've sat across the desk from somebody weeping, saying to me, Pastor, I never thought this would happen to me, until they let their guard down. Until they took their spouse for granted. Until they wandered into a relationship with somebody else that seemed harmless at first. But turned into something destructive. My integrity. I'll always be a man or a woman of integrity. There'll never be any gaps or or openings there. I'll always guard my life in that area. And yet, overconfidence often leads to destruction. Sin has the power to destroy your life. It has the power to destroy your family. It has the power to destroy your church if you don't keep your guard up. That, perhaps to me, is the strongest lesson from the letter to the church at Sardis.